Okay, we are in the book of Jude. We're going to continue our study this morning. We've seen Jude already uh, explain to us that he wanted to write of the common salvation. I mean, what a great theme to share, uh, to encourage each other. Um, But as Jude sits down, seemingly to start putting pen to paper, as it were, um, the Holy Spirit just convicts him that he needs to write about something entirely different. Uh, And it's a subject that no doubt Jude would much rather not have had to address. But he knows that the Lord is saying this is important. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be out there. We need to talk about this. And in some senses, it's an unpleasant topic to consider because it's the topic of God's wrath, God's judgment, not in regard to sin in and of itself, because as believers, our sin is dealt with on the cross. But there is still a responsibility. There's an expectation that we would show good works as a result of that saving grace that we've received. We are not saved by works. We cannot be saved by works. But there is still work to be done. And in 1 Corinthians 3, we see very clearly two types of works identified for us. There's the gold, the silver and the precious stones. It speaks of that which we do for the kingdom. The things that we are doing right now that have eternal value. And it speaks of those things being put through a fire. And if they are put through a fire, gold, silver and precious stones, they are simply purified. That's what the Lord would do in our lives. That's the work of sanctification. But there's another group of three that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3. And that is the wood, the hay and the stubble. And of course, that speaks of the works of the flesh. It speaks of sowing to the flesh, doing things that are purely for our um, pleasure, our entertainment, our benefit uh, in the worldly uh, domain here and now. And those things, once we get to heaven, will simply be burnt up. As they go through that fire, they have no eternal value, no lasting value as we sow to the flesh. We live carnal lives. And so the challenge that's presented in the book of Jude is one of living a godly life that is accompanied by good works and not being led astray by those that would deceive and try and imply that once we are Christians, we can live how we want to. That's really the challenge that Jude is presenting. That's what we've seen so far. Now, as we carry on in this study, let's just remind ourselves again that Jude wanted to write this letter of encouragement. That's how he wanted to present. Uh, But he's compelled of the Holy Spirit. And again, if you remember Jesus back in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 13, there reminds us that there would be tares sown amongst the wheat in the church. Um, that there would be uh, those planted by the enemy with the express purpose of choking out the life from the true wheat. Of course, we are given that clear instruction not to go around plucking up the tares because in so doing you might damage the wheat. But we need to be aware that the tares are there. And to all intents and purposes, they're going to look just like the wheat. In fact, with the tares and the wheat, they look almost identical as they're growing. It's only when it gets to the time of the harvest you can tell a difference. And the difference is that the heads of the wheat will stand upright. The heads of the tares bow over the weight of them uh, and it just speaks of the pride the arrogance the the um, pig-headedness if I may use that expression of these characters that Jude is going to go on and describe for us and it speaks of the way that they 
lead astray uh, and so on and that when it comes towards that time of the harvest um, it seems to be speaking of the rapture that the wheat will be gathered into God's barn um, but the tares are going to be gathered together into bundles and that's significant because we see that these groups that are coming together supporting each other uh, approving of the things that they do so Jude writes to God writes to warn that God doesn't just sit idly by uh, when people turn from walking in his statutes. Evil people have crept into the church unnoticed. This happened in the first century. This is what Jude is writing about, and it's carried on all the way through church history. They teach that you can live as you like, without fear of consequence, because you are saved. But Jude is now countering that and saying, no, actually, it really does matter how you live. Uh, and he gives us these three object lessons from the Old Testament to warn us of, firstly, the danger of being led astray or deceived by these apostates, or secondly, the danger of actually becoming apostate ourselves, you know, that we can lose, we can be disinherited from the things that we should receive, that we should be beneficiaries of, but we can lose those benefits uh, in the light of eternity and uh, really turning away from the grace of God. So this is what we've been looking at. This is what we've been going through. That first example, just to remind you, though Israel, sorry, though uh, yeah, Israel was saved from Egypt. Those who didn't believe all died out in the wilderness, and they didn't receive their inheritance. Inheritance. They were saved, and Jude makes that point. They were saved from Egypt, just as those who are true believers in Jesus Christ have been saved from sin and from the penalty of that sin, God's wrath. But it doesn't mean that we automatically receive the inheritance and the rewards that are there to be earned. The second example that Jude gives us is of the angels who left their natural abode. These fallen angels that are spoken of in, in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, and again, these angels have been in the presence of God himself. But they became subject to his wrath and his judgment because they stepped outside of that boundary that God has set for them. Uh, they wanted something that was not natural. Uh, and God brought judgment upon them. And then the third example is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, and, and it's interesting because we're told that this plain that Lot looks on, uh, as Abraham and Lot were um, contemplating what they were going to do, they had such a large company of people and livestock. And Abraham says, look, the land's not great enough to support both of us in the same place. You know, you choose where you want to go and I'll go to the other place, the other side. Uh, well, Lot looks out and he sees this plain of Jordan and it's this wonderful fertile, fertile land. It was, as it says in the text, it was as the garden of God. It was like Eden. It was beautiful. And yet this incredible place full of beauty becomes this, this arid wasteland as God brings his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah because we're told in like manner, just as the angels had done, they'd gone after fleshly lusts that were not natural. And of course, scripture speaks very clearly of these things. <clears throat> we have the three things really that are listed in John's gospel. Uh, sorry, John's first letter. Uh, that's the lust of the flesh. That's speaking of what went on in Sodom and Gomorrah. The lust of the eyes as these angels looked upon the women of the earth and decided they would take wives to themselves of whom they chose. And then, of course, the pride of life. That's the situation with the children of Israel. It was their own pride saying, no, I'm not going to trust God. I know better than God. God is saying we can go into the promised land. I don't believe God. Yeah, I want to do things my way. I want to be in control. And it's pride. That's all simply what that whole situation, really, the underlying issue was. In First John chapter 2, 15 to 17, we read, 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here we have it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So that's a summary of what we've already seen. Let's go on and move uh, into what we're going to look at this morning. Now, I want to just read again uh, a different translation of what we're looking at. Now, this time, this is from the, Jeru- from the uh, Jewish New Testament. Now, I've uh, used this occasionally in the past. Uh, it's just helpful sometimes to get a slightly different take. Uh, I would always urge you to come back to a good, solid translation. Uh, and of course, you know, my um, passion for the, the King James, it's not authorized by God. People refer to it as the authorized version. Uh, it was authorized by King James, but it is a good translation from the best manuscripts uh, that have been passed down that we have, uh, not from the Alexandrian manuscripts, which corrupted and have all sorts of inherent issues so we need to be careful but it's good sometimes to look at other translations we can glean from them certain things and so i just want to read to you this is say from the jewish new testament from Huda, that's uh, the, the name jude in the hebrew um a slave of yeshua the messiah and brother of yaakov obviously jacob or james as we we know him and to those who have been called who are loved by god the father and kept for yeshua the messiah May mercy, love, and shalom be yours in full measure. Dear friends, I was busily at work writing to you about the salvation we share when I found it necessary to write, urging you to keep contending earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all passed on to God's people. For certain individuals, the ones written about long ago as being meant for this condemnation, have wormed their way in ungodly people who pervert god's grace into a license for debauchery and disown our only master and lord yeshua the messiah since you already know all this my purpose is only to remind you that adonai who once delivered the people from egypt later destroyed those who did not trust and the angels that did not keep within their original authority but abandoned their proper sphere He has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for the judgment of the great day. And Sodom, Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, following a pattern like theirs, committing sexual sins and perversions, lie exposed as a warning of the everlasting fire awaiting those who must undergo punishment. Likewise, these people, with their visions, defile their own flesh, despise godly authority and angelic beings. When Michael, one of the ruling angels, took issue with the adversary, arguing over the body of Moses, he did not dare bring against him an insulting charge, but said, May Adonai rebuke you. However, these people insult anything they don't understand, and what they do understand naturally, without thinking like animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, and that they have walked in the road of Cain. They have given themselves over for money to the error of Balaam. They have been destroyed in the rebellion of Korah. These men are filthy spots at your festive gatherings meant to foster love. They share your meals without a qualm while caring only for themselves. They are waterless clouds, carried along by the winds, trees without fruit, even in autumn, and doubly dead because they have been uprooted. Savage sea waves, heaving forth their shameful deeds like foam. Wandering stars, 
for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Moreover, Enoch, the seventh generation starting with Adam, also prophesied about these men, saying, Look, Adonai came with his myriads of holy ones to execute judgment against everyone, that is, to convict all the godless for their godless deeds, which they have done in such a godless way, and for all the harsh words these godless sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and complainers. They follow their evil passions. Their mouths speak grandiosities, and they flatter others to gain advantage. But you, dear friends, keep in mind the words spoken in advance by the emissaries of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. They told you during the last times there will be scoffers following with their own godless passions. These are the people who cause divisions. They are controlled by their impulses because they don't have the spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in union with the Holy Spirit, thus keeping yourselves in God's love as you wait for our Lord Yeshua the Messiah to give you the mercy that leads to eternal life. Rebuke some who are disputing, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and yet to others show mercy, but with fear, hating even the clothes stained by their vices. Now, to the one who can keep you from falling, and set you without defect and full of joy in the presence of his Shekinah. To God alone, our Deliverer, through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord, the glory, majesty, power, and authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen. So again, just another helpful uh, insight. Uh, some of the things that you see there, maybe you don't get at first glance as you read through the text, but sometimes it's good to look at these things. So let's go, go into this study. Now, what Jude is going to start to do is list 21, um, now that's, that's my reckoning, I'm counting these up as I've gone through, 21 different characteristics of these individuals that he's speaking about that have come into the church that are causing all sorts of disruption and most importantly leading people astray. So Jude is going to list these characteristics and he does it so that we can identify them and recognize these people when we see them. Uh, because they are throughout the Christian church even today. Now, having said that, the example that Judy's going to give us is probably one of the most bizarre examples in Scripture. So we'll come to that and we'll look at it in a, in a second. But let's start with verse 8, where we've left off. He says, likewise. Okay, so now obviously when we get that, we have to remember everything he's been speaking about. He's been speaking about the angels and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and so on. And he says, likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. So that's one of the things that we could certainly cite. Uh, they have no moral regard whatsoever, no regard for God's created order, just like the, the angels, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, is saying these filthy dreamers uh, defile the flesh and despise dominion and speak evil of dignity. So we have a kind of a trinity of, of problems in this verse alone, that they defile the flesh, they have no, no moral compass whatsoever, they despise dominion, they have no regard for God's appointed rulers and it's not just they despise them, but they actually go as far as speaking evil of dignities. Now, the word does imply uh, spiritual um, entities, angels, angelic hosts and so on, and that these individuals have no regard whatsoever for the things that God has created and God's order in these things. Now. We've already looked a little bit about this in recent studies because um, James highlights this, Peter highlights it, John also touches on these things. Um, but in the book of Romans, Paul says this. 
let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, i.e. those in authority over you. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now, whether that's earthly powers, whether that's spiritual, whatever has been ordained by God. And we're told that we need to be subject to these powers. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Paul's really clear in what he's saying, that we need to be very careful with our attitude towards authority. Ultimately, the call that's going out here from Jude is that we need to show respect to those in authority. That doesn't mean we approve of, that doesn't mean we accept or agree with what they say all the time, but we should still show respect. Notice the word subject there. It's very clear. Uh, the idea is um, that you kind of yield uh, to their um, status, their position. You obey, you're subject to them. Very simple. And of course, you know, the question then is asked, you know, but should we yield to an ungodly government? Well, consider the government in Jesus's day. In Jesus's day, I think you'll agree that the government there, the Roman government was no more corrupt than the governments of today. You know, they worshipped openly false gods. They persecuted the truth. They didn't want the truth to be uh, spoken. So we're not really any different. There was as much immorality going on in the Roman Empire at the time as we see in the world today. Yes, we've got technology now which enables the world to uh, indulge in their immorality in different ways. But actually, really, it's no different. Notice what Jesus, though, says in Matthew 22. The Pharisees, uh, Jewish leaders, were trying to trip him up. And they said, tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Now, of course, they wanted to trap Jesus. And he says, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why tempt ye me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought uh, unto him a penny. And he says unto them, whose is this image and superscription? And they say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. It's a really clear statement that Jesus is saying that we should show respect for the governments that are in place. And of course, it's a message that comes through the New Testament. We're not to be kind of vigilantes and setting up our conspiracy theories, trying to pull down or um, to challenge government and so on. Of course, there's a lot of this going on, and particularly over the last year or so with uh, the pandemic We've seen many uh, take to social media to uh, present their views and their opinions and say why the government is wrong. And look, we, we've talked about this. We're very clear that there is behind all of this a conspiracy. The father of lies is engineering things uh, the way he wants. He wants to bring about another one world government. No question. There is a conspiracy. Does that mean that the likes of Boris Johnson and uh, Biden in America are all united in this conspiracy? Maybe. I don't know. But we need to be cautious before we start going around pulling these people down, before we start bringing accusation and slurs against them. Uh, at the end of the day, from what we're told in Scripture, they are there because God has appointed them to be there. Now, that may be because God will use them to bring about the purposes he has, just as it was with Pharaoh in Egypt. Of course, we're told very clearly that Pharaoh was appointed to that role so that God could bring about the deliverance of his people. 
So we need to recognize that God sees a much bigger picture than we see. And of course, it is the plan is revealed in Scripture, but the details and the characters, of course, God is in charge of all of these things. So we are told that we are to show this reverence and respect. In Second Peter, if you remember when we were going through that study, Peter says, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government presumptuous are they self-willed and not afraid to speak evil of dignities now uncleanness they're just morally contaminated is what we're told with little or no more of arrows so this is kind of parallel passage to what jude is saying headstrong and self-serving they despise governments you know and again I said there's an alarming trend among many christians to think that that's the right thing to do presumptuous we're told uh, they're daring audacious you know, unconcerned of the consequences. So this really is all just uh, echoing what Jude is saying. And now we get this example that really is the problem of the most bizarre example you could possibly think uh, of being given. And yet Jude uses this to make his point. And he says, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. He does not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Now, Jude writes as if his readers would actually understand what he's talking about. Everything he's writing to them is in the vein that they they know this. He's bringing this to their remembrance. Now, for us, this is something that seems to have got lost in history. There are some uh, extra biblical uh, writings that allude to this kind of thing uh, and this contention between uh, Michael and Satan over the body of Moses. But let's just ask some questions. Who is Michael, first of all? We'll look at that. Why is he contending with the devil? And what on earth has it got to do with the body of Moses? Why would they argue about that? And we're going to have a look at that in a moment. But let's not miss the point that is being made here. Even in this bizarre situation, Michael did not speak disparagingly even about the devil. Now, that's the example. Now, if Michael, the archangel, in in the position that he's in, and we'll talk about that briefly in a moment... If he doesn't bring about a railing accusation against the devil, you'd think of all individuals, you could bring some sort of slur and so on against him. We're being told don't bring accusations or slurs or speak disparagingly about governments and those in authority. It's a very clear lesson and you couldn't want it, uh, you know, laid out any, any simpler for us. Okay, so we're going to come back to that uh, in a while, but I want to go through and have a look at this strange situation that uh, Jude refers to here. Now, first of all, uh, the Archangel Michael. We're first introduced to him in Daniel uh, chapter 10, verse 13, and we see him engaged in real spiritual warfare against another spiritual entity. There's an angel on their way to come and speak to Daniel, and this angel is withheld as Michael, the archangel, gets involved in this spiritual battle to enable this other angel to get to Daniel to bring an answer to Daniel's prayer. In an actual Daniel uh, chapter 10, verse 21, Michael's referred to there as Michael, your prince, the prince of Israel in that sense. So it seems though Michael, the archangel, by the way, has this specific role in protecting Israel. Now, if you remember last time, we looked at the details about the fall of Lucifer, uh, who becomes known as Satan, the devil, and so on. It appears that Michael was appointed then as the anointed cherub that covers 
once Satan had lost that role. It's simply the anointed cherub that covers. It refers to somebody being over, having this authority over. So once upon a time, Lucifer had that authority over the angels. Michael seemingly now has been given that responsibility. He is the archangel. There's not a multitude of them. There's just one. He is the archangel. But he's got this special responsibility of watching over and looking after the nation of Israel. And of course, if you understand scripture and particularly things like Revelation chapter 12, you'll understand why that's so important. The whole seed of the woman and the importance of protecting Israel so that the Messiah could be born. Now, the question then is the argument. So for some reason, the devil had a special interest in the body of Moses. The devil, of course, is alleging or claiming something. And Michael's disputing the claim. That seems to be clear from the context that we're given here. Now, I want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34, because there we're given the details about the death of Moses. So just read from verse one. It says, And Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pisgah, that is over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah, unto the uttermost sea, and the south, and the plain of the valley of Jericho, and the city of palm trees, unto Zoar. Now, this is really interesting. Zoar, of course, is being that place that Lot had fled to, down by the Dead Sea, Jericho, just on the edge of the Dead Sea, not that far from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, you can see very clearly from Mount Nebo, of course, Jerusalem, another mountain uh, over on the, in the distance, but clearly seen. But from this vantage point, you can basically see almost the entire land of Israel. The reference there to the Great Sea is speaking, of course, of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, which is obviously over on the coast. Um, but um, all the way uh, Gilead and Dan, uh, which Dan at that point is over on the coast side by the Mediterranean. Uh, but the land of Naphtali is right at the top. Uh, and Ephraim, kind of that central area, uh, Manasseh, uh, on the uh, east side of the Jordan as well, or uh, part of that area. So this is the vantage point that Moses has. The Lord brings him to this place to look at the land before the children of Israel cross over and take or start to take the land uh, as the Lord had directed them. Now, that's the view that you get to see from Mount Nebo. There. Today, there is this kind of uh, map you can see there, which indicates where uh, different places are. Um, but you can see just an incredible view um, from that place. Just another uh, picture there. You can see just the incredible extent, uh, the distance you can see from that place and so on. And you can see there the Dead Sea quite clearly um, to the uh, left at the top of the screen. And uh, that's the, the top end of the Dead Sea. If we're to look at that on a, a map itself, then the yellow dot at the bottom of the screen there you see that's where mount nebo is right on the edge of the dead sea effectively uh and then you can see right the the whole region in a sense the panorama that Mo moses would have been able to see uh in fact you from the text it implies he could see even further uh, up to the north of galilee area uh where the area of naphtali was so this is the vantage point that moses has that god allows him to see but then we carry on and read this. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, and notice this, but thou shalt not go over thither. Why? Why was Moses not permitted to enter the promised land? 
Well, interestingly, because of disobedience. Now, this is quite topical because this is what Jude has been talking about. Those that are disobedient, those that don't walk in the statutes of the Lord and so on, will lose out on blessings or inheritance or all sorts of different things. And clearly God doesn't sit passively by. And this is a great example. For all of Moses' faithfulness, he loses the opportunity to cross over into the promised land. Having led the children of Israel and done all the incredible things that the Lord had done by his hand from the miracles in Egypt, leading them out to Mount Sinai and uh, receiving the law and all of those things and leading them through the wilderness. But then this situation, uh, we're told at the end of his life, God says, I'm not going to let you cross over because. Now the because we have to do a little bit of background, is found in Numbers 20. Let me just read this to you. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye, now notice the statement there, what God says, speak ye unto the rock, before their eyes now the children of israel were they'd run out of water and they were crying out for water and god says okay i want to be glorified in their eyes so speak to the rock okay get it he wants to speak to the rock and it shall give forth his water and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink so this is God miraculously intervening to provide for them, for the children of Israel. And Moses took the rod of God from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Now, notice what Moses is saying. Must we fetch you water? Well, that wasn't what God had actually said to him to do. And God isn't actually calling the people rebels at this point either. He just wants to show them his glory. Moses, in a sense, is misrepresenting God. And Moses lifted up his hand with his rod. He smote the rock, smote the rock twice. Now, what was he told to do? Speak to the rock. What does he do? He smites the rock twice. But we're told... And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believed me not. Now again, notice in Jude, the reason that the uh, generation didn't get to enter the promised land was because they didn't believe God. And here Moses told, Because you believe me not to sanctify him in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah because the children of Israel strove for the Lord and he was sanctified in them. Really simple. God had given a clear instruction. Moses decided he wasn't going to follow it. And Moses did his own thing. And as a result of that, God holds him accountable and he loses that opportunity to inherit the land. Again, God does not sit passively by if we decide we want to go off and be disobedient to God. There's a real stark warning that Jude has given us and this just amplifies it. Now, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all did eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Notice what Paul says, that Jesus is or the rock that was following them or that they had they, a number of times on their journeys they had water from the this rock 
And it's saying that that rock was symbolic of Jesus Christ. It represented Jesus, that water that comes from the rock, just as Jesus is that water of life for us. Uh, Those that come to him will never thirst. Remember the woman at the well in John chapter four. So Jesus is pictured throughout the Old Testament as a rock. And Moses here does something that God is not just simply the disobedient, but there's something bigger than we may miss if we're not careful. Now, it's simply this. At Rephidim in Exodus 17, Moses was commanded to strike the rock. I'm sure some of you have seen pictures of the rock. We think we know what rock it was. It's there today. It's about 80 feet tall. And there's this big rock that's split from the top to the bottom. And there's great erosion at the bottom of it. And Moses was told to strike the rock. He does it and water flows out. But at Meribah, which is the one we've just looked at, which is in Numbers 20, Moses was directed to speak to the rock and then water would come out. But what Moses does instead is strike the rock and as a result is denied entry to the promised land. Now, of course, it's disobedience. That's a simple thing. But there's a model here. And the model is very simply this. The first time Christ, the rock, came, he was smitten. The second time Christ comes, he comes in glory. See, at Meribah, the purpose was that God was going to be glorified in the eyes of the people. And so Moses was simply to speak to the rock. And so because Moses not only is disobedient, but breaks this model, God holds him accountable for these things. Okay, let's get back on track. So Moses is called to the top of Mount Nebo and God there speaks to him, reminds him that he's not going to get to enter, but he can get to view the promised land from this vantage point. And we're told, verse five, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And notice this, and he buried him. Who buried him? Well, very clearly, the Lord buried Moses, is what we're told in the text, in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulchre unto this day. So God is the one who we're told in the text buried Moses' body. Now, of course, we have to ask why. Now, one of the answers that often is given by commentators is, well, the God God took Moses' body away from the people and, and buried it to stop his grave becoming a shrine. Now, that may well be true. There may be it may be as simple as that that because we know even with the um, the pole that had a bronze serpent on it later became an object of worship. Uh, the read about in Numbers um, that later became an object of worship even in the days of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah ends up destroying it uh, because people were worshiping that instead of getting their eyes on God. And so, had the grave of Moses been discovered, it may well have become a shrine, and people would have gone there and worshipped it and almost deified Moses. And so maybe that's why. Maybe it is as simple as that. But I suggest that there could be more to it. You see, it's unlikely that Moses wrote the end of the book of Deuteronomy because he records his own death, effectively. Um, And if he's dead, it's difficult to to pen those things. Now, he may have been able to do it prophetically. The Lord may have uh, led him to do that. But it's more likely that it could have been Joshua. uh, And some suggest even Ezra later on could have been the one who actually recorded just this tail end of the book of Deuteronomy. But the obvious assumption as recorded was that God had buried Moses. But this location was also the scene of another interesting event where God also intervened at the end of another life. And this starts to become really quite interesting. If we go to Second Kings, we read this account. It came to pass that when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elisha said unto Eli- Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. 
And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord lives, and as my soul lives, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yeah, I know it. Hold your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. Notice where they're going, coming down towards this place, Mount Nebo. And he said, As the Lord liveth, as my soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And as the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha, and they said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yeah, I know it. Hold thy peace. You know, Shh, I know, I know. And Elisha said unto him, sorry, Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as thy soul lives, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. So Elijah's basically doing a little testing here with Elisha and saying, okay, you can stay here. Just you stay here. I'm going on. And Elisha's saying, no, 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 I'm staying with you. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off. And they, uh, they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters. And they were divided hither and thither so that they too went over on dry ground. So notice what they're doing. They're crossing over the Jordan now. Okay, so from the, the what we tend to think of Israel's side of the Jordan, they're crossing over to the other side of the Jordan. Again, getting closer now to Mount Nebo. And it came to pass that when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask, what shall I do for thee before I be taken away from thee? And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now, that's quite a, an impressive request. Elisha's saying, I, I want to have a double portion of the spirit that God has given you, that I may minister, that I may use it for the Lord. Now, interestingly, we know from Scripture that Elijah did eight specific miracles that are recorded. Elisha did 16. How interesting that God did give him that double portion. And verse 10 carries on it says and he said thou hast asked a hard thing nevertheless if thou see me when i am taken from thee it shall be so unto thee but if not it shall not be so so in other words now that that little test is laid down that if elisha stays with elijah to the end until elijah's taken elisha will receive this double portion and it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder and elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and elisha saw it and he cried my father my father the chariot of israel and the horsemen thereof and he saw him no more and took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces so this location is the place where elijah is raptured literally taken alive from earth to heaven but it's also the same location that Moses, and I put it in brackets or inverted commas there, that Moses died. Now, I'm going to throw this out there, and you're probably not going to hear this anywhere else. Um, so it may or may not be true. Um, so Acts 17.11 applies, but I'm going to give you the reasons why I think this is a possibility. Could it be that Moses was also raptured? And was that the reason that Satan was disputing with Michael about the body of Moses. You see, Satan is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that very clearly. And of course, therefore, he owns that which is in the world. 1 John 5 verse 19 again gives confirmation to that. But does it include that which is in the grave? 1 Corinthians 15.53-55 would certainly imply that that is the case. 
Now, through resurrection, Satan loses any claim whatsoever. Okay, we are born again of the Spirit of God. Satan has no claim over our souls. But from a physical point of view, there's an argument that can be made from Scripture that Satan still has a claim over the flesh. And of course, we battle with the flesh. Our, our war is with the flesh. It's the flesh and the spirit that are battling it out in these days as we go through this process of being sanctified. We're told very clearly that this corruption is going to put on incorruption. At that point, Satan loses any control whatsoever. And of course, no one is going to receive their resurrection bodies until the rapture, which is spoken of in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, that includes all the Old Testament saints and everybody. Nobody gets a resurrected body until that point. So the question is, what was special about Moses' body? Or why did God do something different with Moses' body than with any other individual? <clears throat> And again, what reason would God have for rapturing Elijah and possibly, if my theory is true, rapturing Moses too? Now, maybe it's because there's a future mission to be accomplished in the flesh. Now, again, I know the text quite clearly says that God buried the body. Now, the person that wrote that in Scripture that was exactly their understanding. The body of Moses had disappeared. Their understanding was God had taken it. God, God has buried the body. But we're not given the location. There is no grave. There's nothing that's uh, recorded as to the actual location. And God clearly uh, makes that, that clear that that's not to be known. And Satan disputes about where the body is. It's almost as if Satan's saying, well, okay, if God's buried the body, why can't I find it? Where is that body? It's not there. Claiming, almost saying, that should be mine. I want to claim that body because I own that which is in the world, and there's this dispute that ensues. Well, let's build on this, and you'll see why I think this is all very, very provocative. In John chapter 1, John's Gospel, we get this, and this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confesses to John the Baptist. He confessed and denied not, but, uh, and, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So John the Baptist quite clearly says, I am not Jesus Christ. I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are thou Elijah? Or Elias, as it's in the text. But are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. And then they ask, are thou that prophet? And he answered, no. It's interesting. They say, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Well, in that case, are you that prophet? Who is the prophet who's been referred to? Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, 18, there's a prophecy that effectively Moses is going to come back again. Of course, in Elijah, uh, Elijah's case, in Malachi 4, verse 5, a very clear prophecy is given that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the, the, the time of tribulation that's coming, Elijah will return. Now, uh, this is why I think this is very, very interesting. We have the same thing, actually, in Mark's account in Mark chapter 6. Herod, uh, King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. Now, this is speaking of Jesus, of course, and the miracles that Jesus was doing. And so Herod thinks that John has come back to life. Uh, and therefore, uh, and therefore, mighty works to show forth themselves in him. But others said, OK, so speaking of Jesus now, that it is Elijah. And others said, that it is the prophet, okay, notice, or as one of the prophets. So once again, the clear understanding at that time was that Elijah was going to come back, but Moses also was going to come back. Now, we also know 
that in Mark's account, and Luke's account, John's account, uh, and in Matthew's, we have this uh, reference of actually, sorry, not in John's gospel, but in all the other gospels, we have the account of what we refer to as the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John and leads them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Now, notice that Elijah was raptured. We know that's very clear from the context, from, from what we're told in Scripture. Moses, this is big question mark. And obviously Satan's disputing about what happened to the body. Now, they both appear looking exactly the same. So that from a physical point of view, whatever has happened to one, you could argue, you could say the same has happened to the other. So Moses and Elijah appear talking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, before we come back, I just want to throw something in, which I also think is quite fascinating. Um, you may not find it so, but I certainly did. Um, the common view is that the Mount of Transfiguration is Mount Hermon in northern Israel. Now, I've been there and I was told that this is probably the location and most commentators think it's so. It's the tallest mountain in the region. And of course, the Mount of Transfiguration, we are told in the text, was a high mountain. So it may well be Mount Hermon. And when I've talked before, I've uh, alluded to that fact. We know for sure that Jesus, about six months before he was crucified, was up at Caesarea Philippi in northern Israel. OK, you can see on the map there, uh, right at the top of the map there, Caesarea Philippi uh, is there. And so we know that following that, they went to the Mount of Transfiguration. So most commentators think because it's close by, they went up to Mount Hermon up the top and then they traveled down from there to Galilee. That's what most of us have tended to assume. That's what I've kind of taught. It doesn't really change anything. There's no doctrinal issue here, uh, but it's just trying to join dots together. And we know that from that point, they traveled from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem, where obviously Jesus is eventually crucified. And that, that's fine. There's no real big issue here. Other than what we're told in Mark chapter 9, verse 30 and verse 33. Because after their experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark says, and they departed from thence and passed through Galilee and he came to Capernaum. Now, that's a problem, because if you come from Mount Hermon unto uh, Capernaum, you don't pass through Galilee because it's right at the top end of the Galilee region. It's, it's the number three, number three on the map there. If you can see that, that's the area where Capernaum is. It's right at the top. So you're not passing through Galilee. You're simply arriving at the Galilee area. So it doesn't fit just from that verse alone that Mount Hermon is the location. So if that's the case, to pass through Galilee in order to get to Capernaum, you'd have to be somewhere south of this area of Galilee. OK, so this is kind of the whole region there you can see there. That's the whole region of Galilee. So you're looking for a mountain that's south of there. Now, there are a number of mountains. There's Mount uh, Tabor that's over this side. There's Mount Carmel that's over on the sea. Of course, you've got Jerusalem itself. Uh, which is itself built on a, a mountain. But of course, there is another mountain down here in this area at the bottom near the Dead Sea. So it's entirely possible that Jesus and the disciples, after being up at Caesarea Philippi, traveled down to Mount Nebo and then traveled back up, passing through, as they'd had time to do, the area of Galilee, which is exactly what Mark tells us, arriving at Capernaum, and then from Capernaum, they would have then made their journey eventually back down to Jerusalem. Now, 
Is it possible? Why would it have been the case? Well, I think it's interesting. Just looking at one of the uh, um, online things, I was just Googling this last night, uh, it just said, Mount Nebo still offers an amazing panoramic view over the areas of the Dead Sea, the West Bank, the Jordan River, and even Jerusalem. Now look how close geographically Jerusalem and Mount Nebo are together. If you were on top of Mount Nebo, you would be able to see right across to Jerusalem. They are two mountain peaks with the Dead Sea lying in the middle. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because of the topic of conversation. And by the way, they would have had time to do this. It was six days after being at Caesarea Philippi that we're told that Jesus takes with him Peter, James and John and leads them up to this high mountain. Now, it is a long journey. But for people who are accustomed to walking every day, it would be no more than walking about six hours a day. Now, that's not a huge amount to walk. If, if your typical mode of transport was walking everywhere anyway, to walk six hours a day for six days is not impossible. So I throw this out there as a possibility. Now, why is it even significant? Well, oh, by the way, just as a highlight there, it would have been a fairly easy journey. It's pretty much all downhill from Caesarea Philippi. It's in almost entirely flat until you just get to that last climb up the mountain at the end. So it certainly is a, a possibility. But what's interesting is what we're told here regarding the um, situation. So uh, let me just go back to my slides now. So, uh, yeah, so in Luke 9, verse 30, uh, it says, And behold, they talked with him, uh, sorry, they talked with him, two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, I think it's quite significant that if they're on Mount Nebo looking across to Jerusalem, that's the topic of conversation. Why is that the topic of conversation? Well, because I believe that God had a specific role for Moses and Elijah. Now, back in the Torah, we're told this, at the mouth of two witnesses or in the mouth of the three witnesses shall the matter be established. And in John's Gospel, in John 8, Jesus also makes a statement. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. In Acts 14, verse 17, it speaks there of the Lord that he has not left himself without witness. Now, let me ask you a question. If that's a true statement that God has always left, God has always given himself a witness, who was it that witnessed and testified to the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus? Now, you may think that's a strange question, but not when you realize what we're told in Luke 24. In Luke 24, Verses four through nine, we're told this. It came to pass as they were much perplexed there about, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. All right. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, why seek you the living among the dead? Now, again, I think this is really quite interesting because Luke tells us now, bear in mind, Luke was a doctor. He understood this stuff. He says there were two men and he specifically uses the word in the Greek for man, which is Anwar, as opposed to Angelos, which is a messenger or an angel. So Dr. Luke says there are two men that appear in shining garments, just as Moses and Elijah had appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they appear on the morning of the resurrection at the tomb. Why were they there? Well, my suggestion is they were there to witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to see Jesus actually rise from the dead and then obviously leave the tomb. We also get in the book of Acts at the point where Jesus is about to ascend uh, back to the Father. When he had spoken these things, why they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, Dr. Luke again tells us two men 
stood by them in white apparel. Who are these two men? Well, the logical conclusion, if you draw this together, is that the two men that appeared in this white shining apparel on the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe now, on Mount Nebo, looking across to Jerusalem, were called there by Jesus, Moses and Elijah, to be witnesses of the resurrection. They appear at the tomb. They appear at the transfiguration. And then we also have a very provocative example in the book of Revelation in chapter 11. Chapter 11 of Revelation, yet future, God says this, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn into blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So the miracles that were recorded in Revelation 11 that these two witnesses do are specifically those done earlier in the scriptures by Moses and Elijah. Elijah called down fire from heaven three times, actually, we're told. Elijah was also responsible for shutting the heavens in the days of uh, Ahab, king of Israel. And the time frame we're given in the book of James is actually for three and a half years. The exact same time that they, these witnesses in Revelation stop it raining on the earth. Moses, of course, we know, turned the water to blood in, in uh, Egypt in Exodus 7. And Moses also brought the plagues, all manner of plagues, on the land of Egypt, just as these witnesses are going to do in Revelation. Now, what's interesting after all of this is that we're told in verse 7 of Revelation 11, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. These two individuals are going to die a normal death. Well, I say normal. I mean, as normal as it can be being killed by the beast from the bottomless pit. But they, they die. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which was Jerusalem, of course, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues of the nation shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because the two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth because they're speaking truth and people don't like to hear the truth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them, which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. Now note here that they are now resurrected. Elijah and Moses, if these are indeed other two characters, and it would seem to me almost conclusive from the details we're given, that these two individuals are resurrected now, and then there's this call of rapture to come up, and they're caught up to heaven. So why Moses and Elijah? Well, they seem to be God's appointed witnesses because of what they represent. They represent the law, of course, Moses representing the law, which is obviously perfect. It's converting the soul and the law brings conviction to the heart of man and the prophets. OK, represented by Elijah. Prophecy satisfies the intellect, the mind. So both the, the emotional part of our being and the intellectual part of our being 
God witnesses to. So none of us can turn around and say, well, there wasn't enough evidence or because there's abundant evidence and the prophets give us that. Or we can't say, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't Because the, the law brings conviction to our heart, to our conscience. These are the two witnesses that God has given to every man. And in fact, in Luke chapter 19, we have that account of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man says that, oh, please send somebody back to go and warn my brothers. And the response is given. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They are the witnesses that God has given. The, more, the law and the prophets. So Moses and Elijah seemingly representing these things. So I leave it with a, as a thought. Uh, I say I'm not making a, a doctrine of this, but I think it's very provocative. The more I've been looking at this, the more the pieces fit together. And I think it's really quite fascinating. Uh, why Satan indeed would have this dispute with the Archangel Michael about the body of Moses. Um, so I give you that as a possible explanation, which I think is very interesting. Now, let's just tap off. We're just going to read the last couple of verses that we're going to look at this morning. But these speak evil. Okay, these individuals that that, that, that speak about um, uh, dignities and uh, say, obviously the example we're given is that even Michael doesn't speak in a disparatory sense uh, of Satan. He says, but these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally is brute beasts. In those things, they corrupt themselves. Again, just the Jewish New Testament we read earlier puts it this way. However, these people insult anything they don't understand. And what they do understand naturally, without thinking, like animals, by these things they are destroyed. The Living Bible paraphrase puts it this way. But these men mock and curse at anything they do not understand. And like animals, they do whatever they feel like, thereby ruining their souls. And again, just remind you of what we looked at earlier, that it speaks of those that are not willing to be subject to higher powers, that they will receive damnation. This is exactly the, the message that Jude is giving. You see, God takes the issue of authority very seriously, whether that be authority and order in a nation, whether it be the order in a church, order in the family or order in a marriage. God gives instruction and counsel on all of those things and takes it very seriously. We'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for the opportunity just to think about these things. Lord, the most important thing is to remember that you want us to live godly, holy lives without sin. The Lord, you are calling us, Lord, not to sow to the flesh, but to sow to the spirit to walk with you lord help us to understand just how important your statutes and your ordinances and your laws are that lord you provide them for our blessing and lord may we therefore reject all that is in the world the world the flesh the devil and seek you with whole hearts lord as the children have been learning from this morning lord not like solomon who went after the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh the pride of life but lord may we be like david although he stumbled he was still a man after your own heart, seeking you and desiring you. And even though he sinned, he came to you. Because, Lord, your word tells us that we have an advocate with the Father and that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you for these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.